0: Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Let me pray for us, so and we're going to begin this morning. Father, we thank you for just the chance you've given us now to open up the truth of your word, Father. Just speak very clearly to us. May we sense your power and your presence, Father. I pray you would just do great things in our midst, Father. Keep the distractions away, Father. Allow us just to focus on your word, Father, and your truth. And we pray, Father, that you would receive honor and glory and we would be father as we pray every sunday morning more and more transformed into the image of your son jesus christ it's in his name that we pray amen well last week was a pretty incredible sunday easter sunday morning and i've had the the privilege and the fun this week of speaking to a lot of people about it about the time of worship and about the sermon and i find i find myself in different places speaking about the sermon and and people asking questions and and curious, and I realized uh, kind of in the middle of the week that I didn't do something I kind of intended to do last week. I really wanted to give you, at Easter, if you weren't here, our podcast is available, you can listen to it, but I really wanted to give you uh, some resources, some of the things that i said. Remember, I told you last week, it'll be the same this week. We're just kind of scratching the surface. There's so much we could say. There's so much information. I just kind of gave you the big picture, the 30 You. I have a couple on the screen I want to show you this one. If you're interested more, and this is specifically related to the last week of the resurrection. If you're interested more in the resurrection and, and kind of delve in a little bit more in what we talked about last week, a book, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus Christ, Gary Habermas, Michael Acone, is fantastic, uh, very clear, very understandable when he explains uh, and talks about the resurrection. Uh, drew some information from that last week. And then some of you have seen before evidence that demands a verdict by Josh McDowell. It's called now the new evidence that demands a verdict. It's a brand new book with new information. Uh, It's all things Christianity just a lot of uh stuff you can read and study and, and it talks about the truth of the gospel and then we've got a, a, a website as well at the bottom cold case christianity this was a guy who was a detective who specialized in cold cases right so somebody's killed they can't find out who did it it goes cold for 10 20 years whatever he specialized in kind of bringing those cases back out finding who did it he solved some pretty high profile cases he was featured on some national syndicated tv shows and he was an atheist, and didn't believe the gospel was true. Went to disprove it, and in the process got saved. I think Josh McDowell's the same way. The Bible an atheist went to disprove the scripture, and as he's studying the facts, it led him to salvation in Christ. So those are three very uh, useful, easy to come by, easily understandable references if you're interested in more of the resurrection for last week. I started last week a series that we've entitled Tough Questions Answered, and I really want to speak this morning to the person that may be the skeptic. The person that's a little confused or has never quite bought into the truth of the scripture or the truth of Christ. So last week we answered the question, did the resurrection really happen? We looked at a lot of information in scripture and outside scripture that kind of point to the truth of the resurrection. And then this morning as we kind of continue this idea of tough questions answered, I'm going to answer the question, is the Bible really true? Now, I told the 930 service last hour, if I had been a pastor a hundred years ago, I would never even have dreamed of preaching this sermon. Because a hundred years ago, for the most part, people believed the Bible was the Word of God. They believed it was true. Even if you didn't believe in Christianity, even if you weren't a believer, you respected this as truth, and oftentimes you would read it and still learn from it. But you know as well as I do in the society we live in today, the Bible for the most part, outside of Christian circles, has been dismissed. It's almost like there's not a debate anymore, right? We're not even debating is it real. The secular world outside of Christianity has taken this book and has set it aside. And they say, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting book. Uh, it's, a, it's a good book about literature, and there's some interesting history in there. But there's nothing in there now that would pertain to my life. We, we can't live based on a book written 2,000 years ago. And yet for some reason, even in the midst of what society has done, setting aside, ignoring, marginalizing, whatever word you want to use, even in the midst of that, the Bible still stands, doesn't it? Here it is. I mean, Did you know this is the most sold book in the history of the world? Did you know that? Not even close, really. Did you know this is still the most sought-after book all over the world? Did you know there are people today that will give their lives for copy God's Word? Did you know that? That's still happening. Did you know that for centuries people have tried to discredit this? They've burned it. They've made fun of it. They've written against it. They've killed Christians because they are studying it. Everything you can possibly imagine they've done to try to get rid of the Scripture, and yet we still have it today. It's still printed. People are still seeking after it. It's still changing lives. They say, how, how is that possible with all that's happened over the centuries to try, try to discredit it and do away with it? How is it still relevant today? Well, here's what I think. I think it's more than just ink and paper. I think it's the Word of God. And I think it's never going to be discredited and never going to be destroyed. I think God will protect His Word, and I think there are still things today that we can learn from it and we can live our lives based on its truth. And so here's what I want to do this morning. It's going to be a little bit different for us. If you've spent any time listening to me preach, you understand that I prefer the method of kind of taking a verse or several verses and working through those verses. So we'll study entire books. We'll go verse by verse, or I'll pull just a few uh, verses out of a chapter and we'll study. I typically spend time in, in just a few verses. This morning it's going to be different. We're going to begin at one verse. We're going to use that kind of as a springboard, but more than studying or focusing on one or two verses this morning, I want to think about the Word of God. As a whole, because I want you to answer this morning this question is it really true? Is it really worth studying? Is there enough evidence to indicate that it really may be the Word of God? And if you're skeptical this morning, you've often wondered this question. You're not quite sure if you believe it. I would ask you to do something this morning. Just begin the process with an open mind, with an open heart. Listen, and then take the evidence and allow the Lord to use it. Because I believe when you begin to pile up the evidence and you begin to look at all the things we're going to see this morning, it becomes pretty clear that there's a pretty pretty good chance there's something different about this book. So if you have your Bibles this morning, open to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is going to be kind of, like I said, the jumping off point. It's going to give us kind of a foundation for our study. We'll start there, and then we're going to answer a lot of questions. Let me just kind of warn you as we go, it's going to be a lot of stuff. Okay, it's going to kind of be like I've explained it the first two services this morning. If you think about an iceberg, the vast majority of an iceberg is under the water. You know that, right? So you see what's above the water. The vast majority is under the water. So about 10% of the iceberg you can see. We're going to take just the top little piece of the iceberg. And there's so much more that could be said. There's so much more I could study. There's so many things I could. Now, we could vote. We could stay to three this afternoon if y'all wanted to. We'd be happy to. Y'all not even laughing. you're like, that's not funny. We're not staying I stand on three. So I've got about 30 minutes. I'm going to pack as much as I can into those 30 minutes, but it's going to be a lot of stuff, just the tip of the iceberg. If you want to know more, come talk to me. I can give you resources. I can refer to you to other people. You and I can go to lunch or sit out in my office one afternoon. I'd love to share more with you, but let's begin in 2 Timothy chapter 3, two verses here, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, just for just a quick pause right there, that doesn't say only the scripture that I like to obey. Well, We're, we're real good about believing and and studying and living by a large portion of the scripture, but the ones that challenge us in areas we won't we'll be challenged, we just kind of set those aside. Like, I believe most of this, but then there's, there's these couple scriptures I don't really like, so I'm going to set those aside. The Bible says all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable, right? It's good for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, now we we like to be taught sometimes. We like teaching, reproof maybe, but correction for us is difficult, isn't it? We don't like to be corrected. We think we're right, and sometimes we want to argue we're right, and the Bible says, listen, it's good to teach you, to train you, to correct you. Why? Verse 17, there's a reason. So that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good word. Right? So we're going to study God's word. It's all God's word. He breathed it out. He gave it to us. It's good to teach us. It's good to correct us. It's good to guide us so that we'll be competent, equipped for every good word. God says, I've given you this guide. I've given you this information. You can base your life on it. You can learn from it. You can live by it. So here's the first truth I want you to see. Again, it's really foundational, and then we're going to kind of jump from there. Number one, the Bible is the inerrant and inspired Word of God. Now, I'm telling you that first, and then I want to kind of prove it as we think through it a little bit together this morning. The Bible is the inerrant. That means without error, and it's the inspired Word of God. Now, the Bible tells us Over and over again that it's inspired. It tells us over and over again that these are the words of God. But I want to kind of, again, we're thinking through from a skeptical position here. We're asking if it's really true. The first question you may ask as we kind of delve into this is, where did this Bible come from? It's a good question. Some of you are thinking, well, I bought it at Walmart. That's where it came from. I mean, is it any more complicated than that? Well, okay, well, that's fine. I know you bought this somewhere, but where did the original Scripture come from? How can we say for certain we know where it came from? How did the, the, the guy that published this, the company that printed this in these pages, how do we know where they got it from, where did it come from? So just a little bit of background, first of all, on the scripture. The, the Bible tells us on several different occasions that God gave this word to his people. Now, there are two ways that that happened. I want you to kind of hear both of these and understand them. The first one is kind of the exception. It doesn't happen very often, but there are moments in scripture where the, where the Lord literally hands the words to the person he wants them to have. So, for example, in Exodus chapter 31, Moses has gone up on top of Mount Sinai. Here's what Exodus 31, 18 says. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. So there are moments where historically in the Scripture we see that the Lord literally handed to his people his work. But the vast majority of cases, the vast majority of times, what we see instead is that the Lord spoke through human authors. He spoke through human authors to help them hear His Word. Now, I want to give you some information about these human authors. They're going to be important here in just a minute. Pull that next slide up if you would for me, please. As you think about the Scripture and the writing of the Bible, just to be very clear, there are 66 books. Of those 66 books, there are approximately, you see it up here, 40 authors. So authors like David, Moses, Paul, John, Peter, we, we know the different authors. These are people that wrote the Bible, that the Lord used to write the Bible. 40 different authors, fishermen, tax collectors, doctors, tent makers, written over a period of 1,500 years. So just let's just summarize all the Bible, 66 books, written by 40 authors over the course of about 1,500 years. Now, take all that information put it in a little box, and set it aside for a second. It's going to be important. We're going to come back to it. But as we think about these human authors, the Bible tells us that these people were led by the Spirit to write these things down. So, for example, we see passages of Scripture like 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. Galatians chapter 1, verse 12, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation from Jesus Christ. So here's what the Bible says. Listen, the Lord sometimes gave the actual words, but more often than not would speak through the Holy Spirit into the lives of these authors, 40 authors over the course of 1,500 years, they wrote out the Scripture, right? So the book of Ephesians is a letter that the Holy Spirit gave to Paul that he wrote to the church in Ephesus. Okay, we read the stories of the Scripture, the Old and the New Testament. We say that the Holy Spirit spoke to these people and they put them down on paper. Now, some people begin to ask, okay, great, so the the Holy Spirit spoke to these people they put these words on paper when did this happen well I've got a slide I want to show you actually a few different slides and I want to think through this just for a few minutes with you as we think about the New Testament again I've got limited amount of time this morning Okay, the Old Testament, by the time Christ came along, was settled. It was done. They acknowledged it. They studied it. So I'm not going to talk about the Old Testament, although I'm happy to talk with you about it later. I'm just going to think about and focus on, for the next few minutes, the New Testament. So the New Testament, and this is in chronological order. Remember, we begin with Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospels. But this is in chronological order. You see that around the year 44, the first book of the New Testament was written. Now, let's, let's just make sure we understand time frame here. This is important, okay? Jesus was born right around the year zero. Something interesting. I just, I'm just curious. <clears throat> I did this last hour. Student, somebody in school right now. If, and I'm, I want you to say it to me, if you or teacher, if you know it, say it. What, what do we call this? I want current now because things are a little bit different. I'm going to explain to you why. What do we call the period before Christ lived, before the year zero in school? What do we call it? We put some letters with it. What is it? Does anybody know? BC, BC right? Have you seen the newest versions of the newest textbook, what they're saying now? B C E, right? So when we were growing up, moms and dads, it was B C that meant what? Before Christ. Now they say B C E. You know what that means? Before the common error. Did you know that? They took it out. They're like, oh, we're not talking about Jesus in our textbooks. We're gonna call it B C E before you look it up. Go go research it yourself. Don't I'm not gonna waste your time trying to explain it to you. Go look it up. B C E. What's what's funny is they're still basing it on the birth of Christ and they didn't change the dating method they just changed the little letters so instead of BC it's BCE right? so Jesus is born about the year zero some scholars debate a little bit maybe it was 3 BC about the year zero he lives for about 30 years then he begins his ministry So for about three years, from about the year 30 to 33, somewhere in that range, uh, maybe 32 or 35 or a little sooner, somewhere in that range is his ministry. He's crucified, buried, rises from the grave, ascends into heaven. So about the year 33, he ascends into heaven. So we're saying within about a decade, 15 to 20 years, these books proclaiming the life of Christ, these eyewitness accounts, are already being published and they're already being sent out to these churches now that gives some people a little bit of concern because they say something like this now, why would these people wait 20 to 30 to 40 years? And going through the next slide, just so we can see them. You see Romans at the bottom, on through Luke. All the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, are within 20 to 30 years of the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. Go to the next slide, all the way down to Revelation at the end. All the books of the New Testament are written within the first century. Now, go back to that first slide, if you would, please. Why would it take these people, you know, 15, 20, 30 years to write this down? Remember, we can't compare how we live in this century to the first century. Uh, we, we have the ability in our world to document things instantaneously, right? Kids, did you know there, there was once was a time where you didn't have a phone attached to your camera? Did you know that? I mean, that's a little bit. When we were growing up, mom's dad was like, and he took those, little, you know. <laughs> Yeah, there we are. You see us? You hear me? It was a polar war. That's how we used to do it. Now it's instantaneous. And not only is it instantaneous, but it's out on the world wide web within the next few seconds. That's the world we live in. We, we can document now. Back then, not the case. They, they didn't write very much. They didn't have papyrus. They didn't have the pens and the ink. And that was hard to find. And so what they did back then is they did what we would call oral tradition, right? They, they told stories. And so the disciples who saw the res- resurrection of Christ would go and they would tell the stories to the other people. And as eyewitness accounts begin to grow, the stories begin to grow, they begin to tell these stories among each other. And that proliferated for probably about 20 years. It still happens in our world today. You go to a lot of countries. like When we go to South Asia and we do training, we train based on the storing model. They don't have sheets of paper and fill-ins and overhead projectors and all the things we think we need. We tell them stories out of the gospel. They memorize those stories. Then they go into their villages and they share those same stories. That's how they do it in our world now. That's how it's done in the first century. So, so here's what happened, right? So the disciples, the eyewitnesses, the people that followed Christ told the stories. They began to be circulated through all the churches around the area of Jerusalem and Judea and all around Samaria. People began to hear the stories. They taught them in their churches. It became truth to them. And long about 45, 50, 60, persecution hits. When persecution hits, Christians start being killed disciples start being killed. Eyewitness accounts to the resurrection start being killed. And so these people say to themselves, listen, if we want the next few generations to know what happened, we better take all these stories we're telling and write them down. And so what had been 20, 30 years telling the stories in the churches, all of a sudden we start writing them down because persecution comes, things begin to change, and they need to write them down to make sure that the children and the grandchildren know the stories. Now, having understood that, that's just a little bit of history. Having understood that, we begin to ask the question, well, how do we know, though, that what we have now is God's Word? And how do we know it's true? So we understand kind of who wrote it, and, and they're claiming that the, that the Lord spoke to them, and then there were eyewitness accounts, and then at a certain point they started writing the books down. And So we, okay, I get all that. I get the history of it. But how do we know this is actually God's Word? I'm going to give you three areas that I think are very important that will, in, in a sense at least, prove, right? And again, we're, we're talking to the skeptic. We're just opening your eyes a little bit to this truth. What are some things we can look at that demonstrate straight. This is really the Word of God. Here's the first thing. We have it on the screen. The unified message of the Scripture. Here's what I mean by that. I told you a few minutes ago about all the authors, right? Right. There are 40 authors, approximately 1,500 years. I told you to kind of put that in a box. I want you to pick that back up for a second. Let's think about it. Now follow the logic with me. If I picked 40 people out of this room by random, just 40 people. And I said, listen, I want you to go kind of your own separate ways, go back to your house, and for six months or a year or whatever you need, I want you to write a book. A book or some sort of a story or novel or whatever. You go write it, do whatever you want with it. In a year, we're all going to come back together. We're going to compare the 40 books. What are the chances that those 40 books would share the same themes and the same messages? Is there much of a chance of that, do you think? Probably not. In fact, the chances are probably pretty near zero. There are going to be 40 books that are about random things that have nothing to do with one another. Yet we find in the scripture, beginning in Genesis, all the way through the book of Revelation, this common theme. This theme that God created, man sinned, we've been separated, we've got to figure a way back into right standing with the Lord. We need a Savior. Jesus comes, saves us from our sins, and we have eternal life. You you see this process, and you see this theme, and you see this message throughout. Now, again, we're we're scratching the surface. I I, I could prove this to you with a lot of time looking through the Scripture, but there's just a unified theme. There's a unified message. Really, from Genesis chapter 3, we knew there was sin. We knew there would one day be a Savior to forgive us of our sins, and you see that message throughout Scripture. How is it that 40 authors that didn't oftentimes know each other, that wrote over the course of 1,500 years, could come up with the same sort of themes and the same sort of ideas? Now, skeptic, you need to at this point begin to think, hmm, that's interesting. I'm not quite sure how that would happen. Okay, let's think a little bit more. Here's the second thing I think that points to the inspiration of Scripture. Number two, fulfilled prophecies. Scholars tell us that in the Old Testament, there are approximately 300 prophecies pertaining to Christ. right, so written before Christ was born, about 300 different prophecies that look ahead. Again, this is big picture, but the Old Testament was about sin and separation from the Lord. And they thought the more good things they could do, if they could keep the law, they would be reconciled to the Lord. What they realized was there was nothing they could do to be reconciled to the Lord. They needed a Savior instead. And so the whole Old Testament is looking ahead to this God that will one day come. We don't know who he is in the Old Testament. We don't know where he's going to come from, what his name is going to be. But the Old Testament kind of builds this picture, verse by verse, book by book, that this Messiah will one day come and save us from our sins. I'm going to give you just a few examples. You can jot them down and go read them about, about them later. I, I mentioned already from last week Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is probably the, the flagship. Right, written 700 years before the birth of Christ, yet it clearly shows a suffering servant, the Messiah, who will be crucified, who will be beaten, who will be buried, who will raise again to experience new life. Like the, Isaiah 53 is, like I said, it's kind of the, the, the flagship. It's a clear prophecy of Christ that was fulfilled in Jesus. Let me give you just a few more Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12 is the Passover. Now, the story of the Passover is, is, is complicated and interesting and a lot of history, but here's the big picture. The Lord said to the, to the, to the Israelites that were living in Egypt, listen, the death angel is going to come by this night and is going to kill all the firstborn because of the sin of the people of Egypt. If you want to survive the death angel... If you want to live until morning, you take a spotless lamb, a spotless sacrifice, you sacrifice that lamb, you take that blood, you paint it over the doorpost, and when the angel comes, here's where the name comes, it will pass over your door because, listen now, the lamb's blood, the precious, perfect lamb's blood will forgive you and lead you to life. What does that sound like? It's Christ, isn't it? The blood of the perfect sacrifice offers us salvation. That's Exodus chapter 12. That's the Passover. Numbers chapter 21, the bronze serpent. Uh, The the Lord sends snakes, the poisonous serpents to bite the people because of their disobedience. God says, listen, you need to take a serpent, make a bronze statue of it, basically put it on a pole, the Lord's speaking to Moses. Put the serpent on the pole. When the people look upon the serpent, they'll be healed. Jesus, if you go back and read in John chapter 3 when he's speaking to Nicodemus, he says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, I will be lifted up. So the people looked upon this thing lifted up. When they looked upon it and believed they were saved from death, who does that sound like? Christ. Psalm chapter 22, the story of the crucifixion. Jesus quotes from Psalm chapter 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, The the story in Psalm 22 is a picture of crucifixion written hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented. You see this picture of Christ and what He was going to suffer and what He was going to go through. Isaiah chapter 7. Speaks about the virgin birth and the son that will be called Emmanuel. Isaiah chapter 9 talks about the child that will be born, the government will be on his shoulders, he'll be called the mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. On and on and on and on and on and on this list goes, how do you deal if you're skeptical with fulfilled prophecies? What do you do if you're skeptical that the Bible's not real with all of these prophecies that we can prove were written hundreds of years before Christ that speak about who he was and what he was going to do? The third area that I think points to the idea of inspiration is maybe in my mind the most compelling reason because it's hard to argue with this. Number three, the truth of Scripture in our lives. We understand very simply that the Bible changes lives, doesn't it? Can can we name another book that has changed our life as much as the Scripture has? No. Can we think of another book that is so compelling that we study it and want to base our lives on its truth? No. Many of us in here can can attest to the truth of God's Word because it speaks to us not once, not twice, but every single day. Every time we pick it up, every opportunity we have to read it, the Lord speaks to us. I'll never forget for me personally, when I was called into the ministry, I was teaching school, loving it, enjoying it. Life was good for me, and I decided at that point in my life I wanted to read through the whole New Testament. And so as I was reading through the New Testament, just verse by verse and kind of pouring over and praying through, it was in that moment, in that moment of reading through the New Testament, in those days and weeks that it took me to do it, the Lord began to speak to me and call me into ministry. The Lord uses His Word to change us He uses his word to mold us and to shape us. The truth of the scripture in our lives is a very compelling reason to believe it's written by God. So let's just, let's make a jump now here. Let's make a leap, kind of a logical leap. If we're going to say that this book is the inspired word of God, if it's inerrant, if we're saying that it's something that we should base our lives on and we're seeing fulfilled prophecies and a unified message, and if we're skeptic, at least now we've kind of cracked the door to maybe this thing being true to maybe this really being God's Word. If we're now a little intrigued, let's go to our second point. Number two, we would say the Bible is our authority and we should live our lives based in its truth. Like if we're going to say that it's God's Word and that He gave it to us and it was inspired by Him, then we should say, you know, we need to base our lives on this truth. We need to live our lives based on what the Lord has shown us and given us. Now, we're, we're building this case here. We're kind of answering this question about the truth of the Scripture. We're, we're building this case about whether or not the Bible is authentic. And so let's spend a few minutes now. I want to understand. Let's spend a few minutes thinking about the Bible we have now. Because so far we've talked about who wrote it and when it was written and the message that's contained in it and the fulfilled prophecies. But what about the Bible that we have right now? As Some would say, how do I know it's it's right? How do I know it's true? So let's just think for a few minutes historically about the Bible that you have right here before you. I'm going to make a statement first, and then I want to think through it together. There are more early and authentic copies of the Bible than any other book. It uh, doesn't make a lot of sense to you now, but let me just give you some truth to help you understand. There are more early and authentic copies of the Bible than any other book. Here's the truth: some of you may not understand. There is no original copy of the Bible. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that. You can't go to a museum somewhere and say, "I'd like to see Paul's original letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth." First and Second Corinthians doesn't exist. You can't go to a library somewhere and say, Listen, I'd like to see John's original copy of the Gospel of John. You can't find them, they don't exist. No originals exist now that scares us at first if we've never studied this or don't understand it that's a little concerning, what do you mean there's no originals how then do we know what we have is right, well because what we have instead of originals are thousands of early century copies, remember now when Paul would write the letter they didn't have a copy machine to go make a bunch of copies, they couldn't fax it they couldn't scan it and email it out they literally had to copy it by hand and so we don't see originals but we see very early century copies. And so I've got some numbers for you to talk about the number of copies we have. We have almost 5,700 copies written in the original Greek language. If you add to that other languages, Latin, Ethiopian, so on and so forth, that number grows to 2,400. Now, this is 24,000, 24,000. That's important because we're going to compare this in just a second. But Let me make sure we understand what we're saying. We're saying there are approximately 24,000 copies. That would mean either a complete book or portions of a book of Scripture somewhere in the world. So somebody somewhere has got a little scrap of papyrus in a museum somewhere. You add all those up, there are 24,000 copies dated to the first or second century. That's really, really important because I want to compare that to other ancient books. Right. The Bible's not the only book that we have that was written 2,000 years ago. There are others. So how do the number of copies that we have of God's Word compare to the number of copies we have of other books? Well, I have some things on the screen. I want you to see. This is fascinating to me. Bring the first one up. The Iliad and the Odyssey, written by Homer. Written around 800 B.C. According to the University of Chicago, only about 300 manuscripts of the Iliad or the Odyssey survive, dating from the 9th to the 15th century. So let's be clear. There are about 300 copies of the Iliad and the Odyssey dating from about the 9th century. There are 24,000 of the Bible dating from the 1st century. How many of you have ever heard a professor say, we should throw out the Iliad and the Odyssey because we're not certain that what we have is the actual original? Anybody ever heard that? ever been to a class where the professor says we shouldn't trust Homer because the words we have and the copies we have they're not early enough, they're not enough. No, we we accept it as fact, don't we? Aristotle, pull the next one up if you would for me, please. Aristotle, Poetics written around 400 BC. There are only five manuscripts that exist today. The earliest of which was found about 1,400 years after the original. Five copies. Anybody ever heard a professor say, we need to throw out the works of Aristotle. There's just not enough copies available, and we're not certain. I mean, it was 1,400 years after the original. We're not certain if it's accurate. We need to throw it out. Julius Caesar, pull that one up, please. The works of Julius Caesar, written about the wars of Rome, written between 150 B.C., only 10 copies, no original. The earliest dates around 900 A.D., Anybody ever heard a professor say, we need to throw out the works of Julius Caesar. We can't trust them. There's not enough copies. No, they don't do that, do they? They, they They've i got several others. Don't pull them up because I don't have time. We see these books written about the same period as the Bible, seen with absolute certainty, right? We just believe them. We believe they're real, we believe they're accurate, we teach them in class, professors use them as if they're the gospel right, we know they're right and yet we take the scripture with far more copies dated far closer to the actual events and we throw it out. Isn't that interesting? It's interesting to me that we would take so much evidence so much truth and say simply because we don't believe it that it's not real. See I think the Lord has preserved his word for us I think he's preserved these copies for us so that we can say with absolute certainty, this is not only God's word, it's the same as it was then, and we can live our lives by it. At the very least, we would expect somebody that was in uh, the academic world to use the same standards for the scripture as they do for every other book. And if they did that, let's just be very clear, if they use the same standards for the Bible as they do for all the other ancient literature we had, we would never study any other ancient literature just not enough copies, not early enough. We can't trust whether or not it's real. Now, here's what some of you are saying. I want to answer the question, then I want to think through. we got a few more minutes here, right? I'll give you the third truth, and then I want to think about it together. Here's the third truth we see. We've already seen that the Bible is God's Word. We've seen that we can live by it. It gives us authority. Truth number three, the Bible is still accurate today. Now, that's important because here's the question some people ask. They say, okay, so... so God says he inspired the word and he spoke to the Holy Spirit and you've shown us prophecy and you've shown us the message that's fulfilled throughout Scripture and the, the singular message and all the authors over 1,500 years with the same idea. And okay, so I'm, you're, you're, you're tracking along with this idea that maybe this is the Word of God. You're, you're at least kind of entertaining the idea, but here's what you say. Okay, so, so Paul heard from the Lord and he wrote his letter and there are copies, but that was 2,000 years ago, Adam, and you've already told me that they had to be hand-copied and we know that people over the years As they copied the scripture year after year, they made mistakes. And so there are errors. And so here's what we say. The the Bible we have now is so filled with errors. It's so far away from the original. We can't say with any accuracy if this Bible is the same as it was in the first century. And and so here's what we do. I've got a little stat. Pull the numbers up real quick. It's just interesting, the number of words in the Bible. About 750,000 words, about 3.5. One million individual letters, you can imagine copying that by hand, but here's what happens. Students, I'm going to speak to you just for a second. If you're in college or you're in high school, you're getting close, you're heading in that direction, you're going to encounter one of these days a professor or somebody in authority who's going to say to you something like this. How in the world can you base your life on a book that we know with certainty has thousands of errors? And then they may say something like this, because, you know, we know that people have copied it over the centuries, and when people copy by hand, we can prove to you that there are errors in the things they wrote. We know that there are thousands and thousands of errors in the Scripture. How in the world can you base your life on a book filled with errors? Now, that young kid, that impressionable mind that doesn't know the answer to that question all of a sudden gets scared, don't they? I don't know I never thought about that I didn't know their errors they never taught me that I'm not sure what to say they go home and they ask a friend and they don't know and all of a sudden their faith is shaken I know people just like you who had that professor or who had that teacher who didn't know the answers to these questions and their faith was shaken and they still today struggle with that faith so I want to think about it just for a few minutes as we think through this together and I want to just encourage you to remember one thing students Just because your professor says it doesn't mean it's true. And 99.9 out of 100 times, that person questioning the authenticity of the Scripture is not a biblical scholar. He's never studied the original languages. He's never studied the variants. He's never studied higher criticism, which is comparing the different manuscripts together. He just doesn't like Christianity. He doesn't like the claims of Christ. And he's going to throw this in your face to try to confuse you. Just... Hold your faith. Be firm and understand their answers to these questions. I want to answer this question at least right now, and hopefully this will lead you to answer even more questions. Let's talk about errors within the Scripture. If we were copying 3.1 million individual letters by hand, yes, we're going to make mistakes. Okay, remember now, we're sitting in a dark room with a candle and a papyrus and a quill and ink. Sometimes a monk or the leader would dictate to us and we'd write. Sometimes we'd look at a copy and write. But over the course of years, 24,000 different copies we have now, many more over the centuries that have been destroyed. You can imagine in that process, things have changed okay so let's be clear what we're talking about here when we compare manuscripts if you compare the 24,000 manuscripts that exist today to one another some of them are the same like there's versions of john and mark if you take all the versions of john and you compare the manuscripts there are what scholars would call variants that means there's differences so this manuscript is different than this one and you're like that's scary what do you mean they're different that's concerning to me well let's talk about that just for a second the first type of difference scholars would call are unintended errors. That's about 95% of the variants. About 95% of the errors are unintended. Things like misspelled words. So I'm copying John's copy, right? He's got a copy and I'm copying a copy. And I'm copying this copy and I realize he misspelled a word. What am I going to do in my copy? I'm going to correct it. Well, that's a variant. That's a variant because there's a difference between the different manuscripts. Orders of words, right? He wrote Christ Jesus. I write Jesus Christ. That's a variant. When you begin to add those things up, that's about 95% of the errors we see. Very, very large amount of the variants and the errors that your professor talks about are those types of errors. They're common mistakes that nobody would bat an eye about. Not a big deal, right? So that's about 95%. The next one are what we would call intentional, about 5%. So about 5% of the variance, about 5% of the differences in the manuscripts are intentional. That occurs when I notice something wrong in the original and I fix it. Changing of a letter. Changing of the spelling of a word, the reordering of a word. Maybe the clearest, easiest one for us to understand will help you with an analogy. If I ask you this question, I want you to raise your hand. How many of you guys know where Chipley, Georgia is? All right, hands down. How many of you know where Pine Mountain is? Yeah, hands down. How many of you know that's the same place? Right, they changed the name in the, I don't know, the 50s? Some in that range, right before 19-whatever? It was called Chipley, and everybody went to Chipley, and so you talk about Chipley, and now everybody talks about Pine Man, right? So if I'm reading a book pre-1950, and they're talking about Chipley, I know what they're talking about because I know the difference. Right? But some people may not know the difference. So I'm copying. Let's say a name in the Scripture changes, a city changes names, which happens fairly regularly in the Old Testament and New Testament. The name of the city has changed. I'm copying from the copy, and I see the name of the city, it's the old name. I can either copy it the same way or I can intentionally change it so you know what city I'm talking about. That's an intentional error, right? So when people talk about variance and intentional errors, the changing of the word to spell it correctly, the moving of the order of the words, the changing of city names, sometimes they would add in a prayer to the end of a scripture or something that the church was reciting because they recited it so many times they had added a prayer to it. All those are intentional errors. Now here's what you need to understand. I've got the thing about 99%. Bring the next slide up. 99% of the variants make no theological difference, and of the 1% that do, none affect any major doctrine. So there's, there's nothing in the original that changes the deity of Christ, right? It's not that Paul said one thing and now we think Jesus was God. He always has been. It's not as if Paul talked about one path of salvation and now we understand something different because of all the changes over the years. That's not the case. The vast majority of the changes are not theological. Only a small percentage, 1%, do affect doctrine, but slight doctrine, very small doctrine. By the way, if you're interested, we can go into the 1% and we can look at it and help you feel better about it. But the point is, the ways in which this has been changed and the so-called variants and the so-called errors don't amount to anything so you hear this person questioning the bible based on the errors now at least you have a better understanding of what we're talking about and where that comes from now i need to finish with this i'm running out of time number four my last point we must very simply what does all this mean we must live by god's truth found in god's word Uh, If this really is inspired, if this really is an errand, if we know that it's the same Bible now as we had in the first century, if we can point to fulfilled prophecy, if we can point to a unified message, if we can point to all this truth, skeptic, you're to the point now of saying, you know, there's an awful lot of evidence to prove that this may really be the Word of God. There's an awful lot of evidence to convince me that maybe I should consider some of this truth. And so I pray if you're skeptical this morning, I pray if you're uncertain, I pray if you came and you're kind of wondering about truth, I pray that all the truth I've given you, again, just a a, a tiny percentage of all that we have, I pray that the little amount of truth I've given you this morning will open that door, will crack that door to you desiring to hear more desiring to learn more desiring to question more about the truth of the Bible the truth of God's word and again I'll make myself available to you I'll meet with you pray with you speak with you give you other resources if you're willing just allow the Lord to speak through his word into your hearts okay let me pray for us this morning father we thank you for your word We thank you for all the history and the logic, Father, and all the things we talked about this morning that point to uh, the authority and point to the fact that the Bible is authentic, Father. I pray that if we're already a believer, it would strengthen our faith. It would give us the ability now when we get in those discussions to speak with some knowledge and understanding. And Father, I want to pray right now specifically for the skeptic, for the unbeliever, the person that's unsure. I pray that this truth that they've heard this morning would open their heart just a little bit. And I pray the Spirit would just enter through that little opening, through that little crack in their hearts, Father, and just convey to them the truth, the light. Would help them understand what salvation is and what it means. And I pray through this study, and through your word, this person would receive Christ. Father, just use us, encourage us, strengthen us to be bold in our faith, to be bold in our witness, to answer the skeptical questions at work or at school with certainty and with courage. And then, Father, I pray you do great things in our midst. We love you and serve you in all things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand with us this morning? The altar is open. You can come and pray.